0: On December 23rd, just before Christmas, a massive power outage left more than 200,000 people in the dark in western Ukraine. But the blackout wasn't caused by a storm or even a squirrel knocking out a transformer. In fact, it was the first time a cyber attack successfully took down a portion of a country's power grid.
1: And it doesn't look like the attack was carried out by some teenagers in their parents' basement looking for attention. Instead, many experts have linked the attack on Ukraine to Russia, and that sparked a big debate among experts and policymakers around the globe on everything from whether this may qualify as an act of cyber war to how much should we worry about it being repeated in the U.S.? To help us answer those questions and more, today on this episode of the Cybersecurity Podcast, we're talking to Rob Lee. Rob is a former U.S. Air Force cyber operations officer who personally helped investigate what happened in Ukraine. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America.
0: And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. Here on the Cybersecurity Podcast, we go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field.
1: So thanks for joining us. We're going to talk with Rob Lee in a little bit, but first, Sarah and I are going to chat about some of the more interesting things that we've been seeing and learning in our work here in D.C. and travels around the country. So, Sarah, since we last spoke, what's something interesting that you saw or learned this last month?
0: Well, I learned a lot from a recent article that I wrote for Passcode with one of my writers, Joshua Eaton. It was about what the U.S. government really thinks about encryption. And it might not be actually so obvious for our listeners. I know we talk a lot about the encryption debate here, but... The national debate over encryption is often framed in really polarized terms, uh, Silicon Valley versus Washington, East Coast versus West Coast, and a high-stakes battle over your privacy. You see those terms flying around a lot. And it's it's easy to see why FBI Director Comey, every time he appears uh, talking about encryption and apps like WhatsApp or smartphones like Apple's blocking law enforcement efforts to capture criminals and terrorists, he makes headlines and of course, the you know DOJ battle versus Apple put this frame you know more into stark contrast. But the reality is actually a lot more nuanced. Inside the Obama administration, behind closed doors, there are a lot of discussions going on, and not everybody is on Comey's side.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was at a conference where Secretary of Defense Ash Carter spoke. And of course, he has his big agenda to reach out to Silicon yeah. Valley and to get their aid. But at the same time, you've got this tension between Silicon Valley and FBI. So, you know, what who are these other voices that are playing out there? Is and is Ash Carter one of these?
0: Yeah, Ash Carter has definitely taken a much more nuanced position on this. And if you think about it, like he said, in the military, all of the different ships and the planes and people on their computers on the battlefield, everybody's communicating with each other over the internet. And so Actually,
1: ninety eight percent of US military communications go over the civilian owned and operated internet.
0: There we nice go. Nice little
1: tidbit to use it. Um, you know, your next party.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it, encryption plays such a huge role in those operations. And when you it's even more um, interesting when you look at the FTC for instance, because that's another law enforcement agency, but unlike the FBI which is charged with national security investigation and criminal investigations, the FTC is in charge of protecting consumers and they consider encryption to be a best practice for companies to employ to protect against hackers. And they've actually gone so far as to take law enforcement action against companies that have failed to properly implement encryption to protect their customers' data. Um, in January, they pr- had a settlement with a company, a firm that was selling software to dental practices that failed to live up to industry standards on encryption. They called it their "toothless encryption" claims, and um, you know the settlement was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that's not nothing, and it's you know that's all about just, you know, the strength of encryption. So a lot of people there are worried about with the Internet of Things as more devices are connected in people's homes and their cars and their offices and on their bodies. If there is some sort of government access, it might send a signal to companies that they might not have to employ these kind of strong security measures that would pre- best protect their consumers from hackers.
1: So why are these different voices and interest inside government not being heard? Why is it typically yeah. framed as... FBI slash U.S. government, but you're describing this diversity of interest below.
0: It's a it's an interesting question, and it's one that I've been trying to get a clear answer on. The answer that I usually get is that FBI Director Comey can speak for himself, and I think it's pretty obvious why he's having um, why he's been so expressive. This technology has made it more difficult for him to do his specific job through the FBI specific lens. On the other hand, I think it's it's hard to express some of the complexities of that from the other side. And my sense is from government officials is that, you know, it's a sensitive topic and people don't necessarily understand the nuances of the different kinds of encryption, which ones are more problematic for law enforcement, which ones might not be, and also because they want to work out the policy internally before they roll out some sort of answer. And there's been a lot of pressure in the wake of the attacks in Europe and the San Bernardino attack to come out with some sort of position, and it raises the stakes to try to make one cohesive statement, but they've been pretty quiet on it so far. Another interesting uh, side to that is that people's public positions are sometimes different than they might be in private or people even on the private sector. So the government says anyway, might actually be more willing to work with government, but because if they have the spotlight on them, it might be harder on that side, too, to break with the Tim Cooks and the other companies who are coming out so strongly. So I think it's an interesting question. We're going to have to see how this plays out in the in the coming months. But it is it is important to note, a I, I, senior administration official told me, you know, this government versus tech narrative is a really big mischaracterization. And I think they're only hurting themselves by not not coming out and correcting that with these other views, but it's also good to know that there are these nuanced discussions that are going on behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. Cool. So Peter, tell me what you have been working on this last month.
1: Uh, Maybe the more interesting one for me relevant to this podcast is this week I was uh, a speaker at the Colloquium for Information Security Education, which is basically the conference for people who teach cybersecurity. And uh, of note, they all gathered in Philadelphia And most exciting part was I got to hear from Ben Franklin and what he thought about cybersecurity.
0: How did that happen?
1: (laughs) Uh, Ben Franklin was the other keynote speaker. Um, I will say he was Ben Franklin. At least that's what I told my kid. I was actually an actor dressed up as Ben Franklin. But um, he offered up a variety of lessons from his life as they carry over to cybersecurity.
0: What are some of those lessons?
1: Well, um, one was uh, Ben Franklin was uh, the founder of the first library in America. And it basically came from the idea of uh, they needed to figure out a way to share books and that hits the whole critical issue of um, information sharing. And okay. uh, the parallel to it is it was originally a private effort and then became a pr- public-private partnership. Ben Franklin was uh, one of the founders of the first uh, hospital in the US. And again, you have these very interesting parallels to how we dealt with public and private health. And I've written about how I see that as sort of a key way of you know breaking out of some of the marketplace problems in cybersecurity. Ben Franklin, it's not talked about as much, but played a crucial role in intelligence during the Revolutionary War, um, being linked to some of the various spirings and the like. And if you go back to that period, the United States, um, at least according to one British general, uh, didn't win the Revolutionary War because of our battlefield advantage, but because of our spies. And that points to, you know, if you're thinking about cybersecurity, the valuable side of threat intelligence. Um, But then uh, unbe- you know, ben Franklin did lots of cool things, lots of great things. Only now do we know that one of his um staff was actually in turn a British spy, oh, which points to the insider yes. threat problem. So if you wanna learn about cybersecurity, go back to the Founding Fathers.
0: Huh, that's really interesting. I've Definitely, would have never thought of that.
1: <laughs> it was look, it was a smart thing on uh, that the organizers yeah. of this conference did, and it, it's it's fun to use these metaphors and learning um, from different fields and different periods of time. But you know, for me, more broadly, what that experience uh, of interacting with the the folks who teach cybersecurity sparked was um, this question of. Uh, and we, we constantly talk about it of how do we widen the pool of people working and in, interested in cybersecurity and um, particularly interested in how do we uh, take it down levels where much of it right now of the activity is going on at the university level mm-hmm. and how do we push it down further into you know high school and primary school level. And there's all sorts of mechanisms for that, you know, everything from the creation of elective courses in high schools, online education programs for kids, internships, um, summer camps. Uh, Frankly, we also need elementary school elements to this. I'm struck by how you have kids, you know, in first, second, third grade that have all sorts of programs where they've got passwords already, but they're, you know, already making the mistakes that the adults do. Um, I think the challenge in all of this, you know, is that that we have these happening in different areas and it's somewhat funded. So, for example, the National Science Foundation put about $45 million into this, but it's clearly not widespread enough. And by that, I mean not widespread enough in terms of the scope of uh, and the scale of the problem of cybersecurity. Uh it's not widespread enough in terms of its distribution. Many of those elements that I mentioned, you know, be it uh, elective courses at a high school or online education internships, they tend to tilt towards um, being uh, something that privileged kids are more likely to have access to. You know, you, you go to a, a a good school, or you you know, guess what? The online course costs or the summer sc- uh, summer camp costs fifteen hundred dollars. So it's not very rep. Representative. It's not very distributed. And then the final problem of all this is that um, it's certainly not global. While we've got this going on in the U.S. and it's to, you know, it just listed some of the goods and the bads of it. It's clearly not to that level in a number of other nations, whether they're, uh, you know, peer uh, kind of, uh, you know, economy level nations, be it like a UK or Australia, but even more so when you get into, say, uh, the developing world. But of course, the cybersecurity ills cut across those economic side.
0: Well, what would be one way to diversify and make sure that people from all different kinds of backgrounds get access to this?
1: I think when we're uh, thinking about building these programs, we have to... weave in the socioeconomic side of it. We can't just be excited that we created X. Um, we have to go, how are people going to access X? Am I unintentionally putting certain barriers to entry, be it the charges or the location of it? Um, you know, that, That's gotta be baked into the design, which is again, it goes back to how we think about cybersecurity in general. You can't approach it after the fact. You've gotta be um, baking these things into the design of what you do. And that also applies to the education side. Uh, And Ben Franklin and all the things that he built to swing us all the way back, you know, public access was behind these. It was, you know, a library. It was a hospital. Um, And so I think there's some cool lessons to pull from that. And now for our main event, we'll hear from Rob Lee. He's co-founder of the cybersecurity company Drago Security and a former U.S. Air Force cyberspace operations officer and maybe most importantly, a cybersecurity fellow with us here at New America.
0: He also investigated the Ukraine attack, and he's due out with a report for New America soon.
1: Thanks for joining us, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me. So talk to us about the grid attack in Ukraine. What happened? What are the biggest myths about it that you hear in briefs and media versus the real story? Sure.
2: So the real story behind it is that on December 23rd, a aggressor, uh, commonly identified as the Sandworm team, ended up going after three different regional control centers in in the Ukrainian power grid. So in other words, three buildings, three centers that have uh, ability to control portions of the power grid. So they went after these three sites and they conducted a very intentional, very deliberate cyber attack to manipulate the environment and bring down those portions of the power grid. So ultimately, three distinct and separated regions of their power grid went down leaving around 225,000 customers in the dark for about six hours.
1: What was the timeline of the, if I can interrupt you there, what was the timeline of um, when they begin their attack uh, versus you know what plays out? So how long they prep for it, et cetera?
2: So it was extremely professional and quick. So they got into the environment like six months ahead of time and spent around six months to do all of the work required with reconnaissance, with understanding the environment, and ultimately preparing for the attack. But when it came time to actually do the attack, uh, this was like a 30 minute kind of window, right? So they go to one facility, had a couple minutes there, and then 30 minutes later hit the next facility, and then 30 minutes later hit the next facility. So it was a very highly professional and coordinated attack. And by the time it was all over, uh, maybe an hour or so had passed, it was not an opportunity really for defenders to disrupt it too much then. So there's a lot that they could have done in the six months leading up. But when it was actually time for the attack, it was pretty quick.
0: And so what struck you as you were doing the investigation? I mean, you're saying it's sophisticated, it's professional, it was clearly planned out. What's something that you think people might be missing about, about the attack and the way that it's been presented in the media?
2: Sure. So there's definitely quite a few areas that need cleared up. First of all, as we intimated with the term cyber attack, you hear this all the time. Oh, well, there was cyber attacks all over the grid, or 200 cyber attacks, or 600,000, you know, all these hyped-up metrics. And what's important to know here is when people use the word cyber attack, what they're usually saying is, somebody got into our environment. And really, that's usually espionage, uh, maybe theft, but it's a breach. In an attack, especially with the systems environments, you're looking for physical destruction, disruption, uh, power going out, things like that. And we don't see that. This is actually the first time that a power grid was actually taken down, or portions of it, uh, due to a cyber attack. Now, the, the big narrative issue that I see, there's probably about three of them. The first of which is everyone focuses on the malware involved. They say, oh, Black Energy 3 was involved, this specific strain of malware. And they focus on, well, I need a product to protect me from this malware. Here's how we defend against this malware. And people forget that malware is just a tool the capability. The real threat is the human adversary that coordinated this campaign and executed it. And we need to be flexible enough to counter whatever next capability they throw at us, but the malware wasn't responsible for the power grid. It just enabled the adversary to take control and do that. Now, the other thing that I think has been a big myth that deserves to be sort of silenced a bit is there has been this discussion that, well, it was just a six-hour power outage. So we don't have to really be concerned because ah, six hours isn't a big deal. We can recover from that pretty fast. We can't look at the outcome of an attack and assume the adversary's intent. So we don't know what the adversary intended to do. They may have just intended a six-hour uh, power outage, likely to send a message, but they could have likely done much more. And we have to be prepared for those much more kind of scenarios.
1: So then, can I finally, can I interrupt you I'm there? Like, when it comes to yeah, the six sure. hours. uh, Talk to us about the recovery side, because the determinant of six hours would, you know, if it was literally turned back on at the end of six hours, we would say, aha, that's the attacker's intent versus um, if we see, you know, the reaction of the defender. So talk to us what stood out about the recovery as well in this.
2: Yeah. So the the outage was restored. Like, the power was restored after six hours. I would uh, probably hear that. So the six hour outage, they were able to restore the power. What's interesting about this is they had to go to manual operations. And what that means, in a power grid, you have a very highly automated environment and it's called a SCADA system. And this system of systems controls the flow of electricity throughout that power grid. And so when you rely heavily on that automation, it becomes difficult to do it without it. And in Ukraine, they were actually relatively familiar with doing it without that more modernized system. Um, but the attackers completely took that out, uh, destroyed the Windows systems running this specific type of system. What that meant was that even though the outage was only six hours, the manual operations of the grid without this automated system took place for a month or two. We, we can't respond in that way. So when you talk about the Ukrainians driving out to field stations and manually controlling circuits, you know that's a very sort of very manual and granular process. For us, we rely so heavily on automation that if we had to do that across multiple regions, it would be much more difficult for us.
1: I think that's a good way of getting at the question that's on a number of people's minds, which is basically, could this happen in the U.S.? And then you're framing it. In some ways, if it could happen, it might be even worse. Correct. So I think
2: there's there's some realism that needs to be had and how difficult it is to take down a power grid. right? So there really is no single power grid. We have multiple interconnects. We have multiple portions of the grid in in the US. But some people have said that it's really, really hard. You can't do anything to it. And some people have said, oh yeah, it's trivial. You 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 blink and the power grid goes out. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. We have a really good power grid. We have amazing professionals doing good work. um, And it's rugged in nature. But it's not nearly as hard to take out a region for a couple hours as people make it out to be. And it's not nearly as easy to take down an entire portion of the grid as people make it out to be. So right in the middle is the part where the truth is.
0: Well, why is it so and, hard to prove how hard it is? I mean, are security researchers looking into this, talking about this, is it possible to investigate?
2: Yeah, there's a, a number of variables at play. So uh, if we look at the quality of research today, there are some professionals who really understand industrial control systems and cybersecurity and are researching it. But at the same time, you also have a lot of either engineers who don't understand security, or even more what we see as security professionals who don't understand engineering. What that ends up meaning is we end up getting a lot of people focusing either on the wrong issues, or get people who are approaching them without really understanding what they're doing. And so we might find vulnerabilities I get re- released to the you know, industrial control system, uh, computer emergency response team for the U.S., and a lot of those vulnerabilities are meaningless. Uh, or might have research that's saying, oh, my gosh, you're going to take this seriously. It's a cyber attack worthy event and a big deal, and it's all hype to sell products. There's a lot of snake oil in this industry, um, but it's also just difficult to get access. And these are very expensive systems. It's not like you could buy... You normally, you just not to buy a utility and then go in and test out taking it down.
0: Right. Would that be a crime to do something like that? I mean, it's one thing if you're buying a car and you're doing car hacking, which is controversial enough on its own. But it seems like if you're going to go practice on a power grid, that seems like it would be pretty <laughs> controversial <laughs> slash dangerous.
1: Please don't practice on my power grid. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it would not end well for you.
2: And so if you buy some single control systems on eBay, you know, no problem. But it's not really realistic. You didn't set it up and connect it to a portion of the grid. To buy a utility and connect up generators or anything to a grid, um, you're going to need a lot of different permissions, whether mm-hmm. it's federal or whether it's just from the, from the asset owners that own that portion of the grid. And you're not going to get very far. Um, so there's a, a limit in access to how we can research these problems. Uh, and there's a limit to the, even the cultural awareness around it, which I find to be the bigger issue. You know, when, in, in the wake of the Ukraine attack, there were people that went in front of Congress that were industry experts that said very, very misinformed things that are driving policy about this attack and what our responses look like. I think one of the biggest myths today about this whole thing is the uh, point that regulation is somehow keeping us safe. There's been leaders in front of Congress saying, don't worry, we have these federal regulations and we're protected. The problem is, if you look at the regulations, they don't actually apply to the portion of the grid that was attacked in Ukraine. So that type of grid is called a distribution grid. Federal regulations don't exist there. So if you took the exact Ukraine attack-
0: In the U.S., you mean they don't exist for that section? Correct.
2: Yeah, Yeah. so if you emulated, if you did a Ukraine-style attack on U.S. distribution, Regulations would do nothing for you because they don't exist at that level. And even when they do, regulations are just a starting point. You can't take what we saw in Ukraine and do a one-for-one and say, the adversary did this, so they'll do that to us. That's not how an adversary works. The only thing that we need to be concerned about is there was a human adversary, a team of them, very well-funded, very professional in nature, that had the willingness and intent to take down civilian infrastructure. And that should be concerning because when they get to our environment, if they choose to do so, or or at some point someone will, they will adapt their tactics, they'll adapt their capabilities to our environments. And products and regulations aren't going to solve that. It's really going to come down to human defenders that are well-trained and flexible, just like the adversaries.
1: So based on what you learned, what's the key actions that you'd like to see first on the policy side? So you've already kind of pointed to a gap um, that we see there. But then in turn, what American utility companies should be doing differently?
2: There are so many things that need to be done that it's really difficult to suggest one thing. And so it always introduces issues for policy and governance to actually suggest a wide variety of things. You, you try to want to tackle one thing at a time. So when I'm looking at it, there's all the basics of security you should do, right? You shouldn't be able to remotely access portions of your power grid from home, right? So you got to fix that. I mean, there's all these aspects around culture, and there's also the aspect that there's a lot of people selling products and saying to asset owners, here, this will do this for you, and it actually doesn't. Sometimes they even introduce more risk. So the only thing that I have found that can actually address everything on at least a small amount is the people. And so that's the piece that I have coming out. The whole point of the policy recommendation that I'm making is that we have to get better trained and empowered defenders in these environments. We have to have good, trained people so that they know what products are needed. They know what uh, security changes are needed. They know how to change the culture. They know how to respond in an actual attack. The people are the key. Everybody agrees on that. So when I look at what the government can do, you know, the government often thinks it has more control than it actually does. These companies are stock-owned private companies. Government's not going to go in and make a whole lot of changes without some level of buy-in. So to me, the one thing that the government can do is, is tax incentives or tax credits revolved around training people. If the utilities want to install new network switches, they need to buy those network switches and they need to train network engineers to do that, right? If they're getting direct value out of infrastructure they're using, the government shouldn't be on the hook for any of that. But when these, when these utilities are responding to nation-state cyber attacks and nation-state espionage, we shouldn't expect them to be out there on their own against foreign adversaries. Uh, now, we shouldn't be sending people into those environments. The government shouldn't be offering up instant response services for these utilities because they don't even understand, you know, each implementation. But what we can do is say, "Hey, look, we're going to, you know, cut you a break on the taxes you pay as long as you're uh, applying those taxes directly to training the people that we need." And now there's an increase in national security, and there's an incentive to uh, do security, whereas before it was just seen as a, a major cost center.
0: So all of those are really interesting points. Um, but I do want to go back to one question or one point that you raised earlier, and that's about intent. And it's interesting because you really do see few cyber-only military operations. And as one expert, uh, his name is Jarno Limnel from Finland. He's written about this. And he says that war is an extension of politics and cyber operations are merely an extension of both, which I think is a pretty interesting way of putting it. I and mean, do you think that the actors who might have might want to take out the US power grid would actually do it and if war broke out do you think that this calculus would change here
2: yeah so the whole plow switch idea right and war in politics it, it still applies the the idea that we're just going to randomly see a crippling attack on the power grid for no reason whatsoever is absurd Now, we need to be careful as we become more interconnected, it becomes easier. And maybe one day the idea of terrorism or extremism is possible. Today, uh, I don't buy it. I'm not for for complicated attacks against the power grid. Uh, But one day we should be
1: concerned about that. It's it's just a pure capability. Your your reasoning is it's a pure capability problem that they can't bring together that kind of skill set? Correct. I mean, this is
2: where I said that there was sort of two camps, the people that think it's super easy to take down the grid and the people that think it's harder than it is. Uh, the people in the super easy camp. There's a lot of folks that come out and say, "Well, we got to be careful about cyber terrorism. Uh, no ISIS, Boko Haram, AQIM, or whoever terrorist group uh, has the capability to develop long-term operations to get into the power grid and develop specific engineering knowledge capable of causing physical destruction to infrastructure or causing uh, long disruption. It's just not not an option.
1: What if they hire a team of squirrels or that monkey that took down the Kenyan power grid?
2: Well, see. I- <laughs> Yeah, and I think this is, you know, I, I I don't I don't like when experts or I hate the term expert, but I don't like when people uh, extend their expertise farther uh, than it is. So if you are really good at digital forensics, you probably shouldn't be talking too much about penetration testing unless you've done it. Um, so I, I get that I'm talking about terrorism. Uh, so I will go ahead and caveat that before I did anything in cyber, uh, one of my jobs in the military was counterterrorism. And so looking at this from a counterterrorism perspective, as well as cyber expertise, as well as industrial control system knowledge, people that are making that claim are driving me insane. It is not a realistic scenario.
0: Yeah. But it is interesting because you know, when I, people hear that I cover cybersecurity, often one of their questions is, well, you know, there's all this power grid chatter around. Do you think that this could happen Could happen to the, to the power grid as is one of their main concerns when I, you talk about cybersecurity with people just who aren't necessarily in the field? But it always makes me wonder, you know, are those people just as equally worried about, you know, a major attack from one of these countries who could do it? I mean, what are the consequences and sort of the geopolitics that play, maybe not in terrorist groups, but for countries like China or Russia or some of these other things that would go. And we're talking beyond espionage. We're talking an actual destructive attack on U.S. soil.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And I think we're really missing the mark here. And, and why I say that is we have not set good legal foundations. We've not set good international policy around these attempts. And if we think about it, the first time we actually saw a public case of a cyber attack taking down a power grid or portions of it, what was our response? Well, at the SANS Institute, myself, Mike Asante, Tim Conway, and a couple of industry experts got together and wrote a report and detailed everything about the attack and had everything ready to go within a week after the attack. So it took us a week to analyze out everything and prepare a report. And we were specifically pressured from government not to release the report because they were doing their own investigation. And so we complied. And then it took them two months. And their report was, yep, we can confirm the cyber attack happened. You've got to be kidding me. You know, I am a huge supporter of, of a lot of the amazing work that goes on the government. But our international response, our official response to a power grid attack actually happening was two months after the attack to just agree that it happened. So if you're the attacker, talk about an incentive, right? You got away with attacking civilian infrastructure and nobody said anything. At the very least, we could have come out and said, Hey, look, we don't have all the details right now. We're trying to get everything straight, but we want to say that here's the public reporting on it so far. And if this happened, we condone it. Uh, You know, a cyber attack on civilian infrastructure is crossing the line. We're not, we don't have to say who it is. You don't have to get, you know, know, threatened action. But at least they could have said, Hey, you people, our hearts and minds are with you right now. We know it's a scary thing when the lights go out and we. We don't condone this at all.
0: And so even at this point, I mean, has it been officially announced or attributed who did it or the intent behind it? I mean, do we have clarity on that? And what does that you know, mean for when you're th- looking at this, the geopolitical implications of this?
2: N- nothing. So the nothing has happened. They released the report, and then in all the conferences and all the panels and all the discussion, if you look at the government officials, Almost all of them, except for maybe the military folks like Admiral Rogers, has downplayed it. They've spent more resources and time downplaying this attack and trying to say, well, don't worry, this won't happen in the American power grid. Than they have actually trying to respond to the attack and say, hey, here's how we would respond. And uh, this is not something we can do. So I'm I'm usually, like I said, immediately a huge fan of a lot of that goes on the government. I try to be very supportive. Uh, But we not only missed an opportunity here. But we sent the wrong message to the international community and to the American people.
1: So if we're talking right now in June of 2016 and you had to put your crystal ball, uh, let let me rephrase that. So we're talking right now in June 2016. If you had to pull out a crystal ball, what would you predict? Does this all look like, say, a year from now? when it comes to the power grid, its security, the policy that surrounds it? More of the same.
2: We are in a position where we have a lot of passionate people trying to help out. So training individuals, getting involved, we're we're definitely making some advancements. But what people sometimes fail to realize is we're also making the wrong kind of advancements. Uh, And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to have some sort of compensated control. And what I mean by that, Is traditionally speaking, one of the benefits of industrial control system environment is that they're very weird and unique, and an attacker has to spend a long time learning them before they orchestrate an attack. Well, because of the way the industry trends are going, starting to see more common platforms, more common infrastructure, uh, our little rugged devices that used to be uh, completely unique are now running Windows and very common, even though. We're getting farther ahead in the industry, and I do see a lot of optimism to be had, and we're advancing things. We're also introducing things to our environment, which are going to offer opportunities to adversaries. So my problem is we're both kind of progressing. We're both kind of progressing at the same rate. The adversaries aren't out innovating the defenders. The defenders are doing a good job. We're not really getting ahead enough to catch up to where we need to be, and that's where I think the government's role should be. I don't think the government should come in and fund the technologies. You know, there's markets for that. There's, you shouldn't use taxpayer money to compete with civilian companies. And they shouldn't offer services that companies exist to offer. But they can offer things like tax relief to try to get ahead of this issue, to try to empower the defenders that we need to counter the issues that we have.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for joining us. Very happy to have you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks again to Rob for a great conversation.
1: And please join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. You can subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer.
0: And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 International license. Music thanks to MK2
2: for their songs, The Big Score and Cold Killer. To learn
0: more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.